Well, we're in Ephesians. We've been there for a little while now. We've gotten finally out of the first chapter. Uh, several weeks ago, I began this consecutive expository series on the epistle to the Ephesians. And so far, what we've basically covered is Paul has spoken to, through this letter, to the Ephesian churches, or church, as the case may be, whichever it is, uh, and he has given them the master plan and purpose of God that he revealed in chapter 1, the amazing plan that goes before all creation, begins in eternity past, sweeps into space and time history, culminating in with the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, and then the future that is to come. And now we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And Paul wants them to grasp all that God has done to them, all the spiritual blessings that are theirs in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul goes into chapter 2, which basically has two sections and two parts. One of them we're going to be covering today in verses 1 through 10 in our scripture reading. And that will reveal how believers are saved from death to life. How that happens as we are reconciled to God. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. How sinners become reconciled to God. Next week, or not next, uh, not next week, we're actually we'll be doing a special message for Easter, for, for Resurrection Sunday, uh, but we'll be looking at the corporate aspect of reconciliation and how God brings together people that are diverse. If there's ever that message that needs to be understood, and it is now in our time, and we know that God is not just concerned with our individual salvation, he's concerned with our corporate togetherness as his body, the church. And so we'll be looking at that uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, today, our scripture reading is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And I would encourage you, remember this is the word of the Lord. Hear it with appreciation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for 
good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Father, give your Holy Spirit to illumine the truth of your word to us all today. And may we receive the engrafted word with meekness and may it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness as we walk with you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. As we look around today in our time here in the 2021 in our part of the world here in Florida, we have a lot of opportunity to get a lot of information. And a lot of the information that we get is very discouraging. There are problems increasing, it seems, in our time. Financially, educationally, socially, governmentally, and ethically and morally. And despite all the promises made by our politicians and our educators and our social scientists, the inevitable slide seems to keep coming. Despite all the promises that we can fix this, we can make it right, more and more it seems to be falling apart, breaking down. There seems to be greater evil than good. Human beings seem incapable, and indeed are incapable, of managing their own affairs or creating a just and free and tranquil society. Why is this? Why is this? Well, our passage today tells us why. Tells us if anybody would listen and pick up the Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, they would know why all, despite all the promises and all the things that we are told, things are going to get better, we're going to one day reach this nirvana, wonderful place where everything is roses. And yet, it's not coming. Always promised, but it never gets here. Our passage today tells us why. And in the immortal words of Pogo, long ago we have met the enemy and he is us. The problem is not out there, the problem's in here. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart, mind, and will of human beings on planet earth because they are not what they were supposed to be. They are not what they were put here to be, and they're not doing what they were, are supposed to be doing because they, for the most part, so many have turned away from God's provision. You see, born into this world, mankind has a threefold problem. That's the bad news. But the good news is God has an answer, a solution to bring sinners from death to life. To bring those that are dead 
to true and everlasting life. Now, here's our outline today, pretty simple. Our death before Christ, our life in Christ, and our walk with Jesus. Walk with Christ. Let's look at those three things today from our text that we read. First of all, our death before Christ. And that's basically the first three verses of our scripture reading this morning. Now, here goes Paul, starting off on a cheery note, right? Verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Boy, what a downer, Debbie Downer. You know, Paul, you're dead. How'd you like to greet somebody and come up? Hey, good morning, you're dead. And your trespasses and sins. You think, man, what a, what a you know, come on, you got to have something better than that. But that's exactly how Paul starts. No doubt some of you, speaking of the dead, uh, no doubt some of you have seen episodes of The Walking Dead, right? Some of you, and I know some of you have for certainly. Um, You've seen episodes, or at least you've heard about it, or you've heard, uh, and some of you, if you'll admit, you have watched, maybe even binge-watched some of it. Although, how many, eight, nine years has <laughs> this thing been going on? I don't know if it's finally, if it's finally off, but uh, we watched it for a little while. But uh, anyway, if you're not familiar with this, uh, Walking Dead is a post-apocalyptic horror television series that features large ensemble cast of survivors from a zombie apocalypse. In other words, the zombies have, have taken over the world, the virus has spread, and, and they're killing everybody, and there's only a few pockets here and there where people are still uh, alive. And so trying to stay alive under these near-constant threats of attacks by zombies, colloquially known as what? Walkers. They're walkers. Well, I don't know if the Apostle Paul knew anything about zombies. Probably didn't. But you know what? He may not have known about the walking dead, but he knew about dead men walking. And guess what? That's every person on the planet apart from Christ. Dead men walking is a way of saying, whether you know it or not, you're as good as dead. You will. You're on that road and there is no stopping it. That's what a dead man walking means. Judgment is coming. Death is coming. And the Apostle Paul, when he talks about dead men walking, he's talking about people in their natural condition, whether they know it or not, are dead. Now, does that mean everybody at this moment is already physically dead? No, of course not. There's still people alive on the planet, in a physical sense. But Paul is talking about something far more lethal and deadly and permanent, and that is spiritual death. Spiritual death has come upon all of humanity. As we come into this world, we come in in spiritual bondage and death. And Paul talks about three things, describes it, this this spiritual death. He says we are, or excuse me, he says we are dead. And the second thing he says is that we are enslaved. And the third thing he says that we're condemned. So let's look at these just for a few moments here. Spiritual death is traced back, according to Paul, to two things, trespasses and sins. Trespasses, 
What is that? Trespass is, is a word that both of these comp, uh, uh, basically compromise human evil. A trespass is a false step, a crossing of a boundary that, sh- that is there and should not be violated. That's to break something, to go against it, to trespass, is to break that boundary, to go outside of it. Sin refers to missing the mark. In other words, whatever the standard is, sin falls short of it. That is not able to achieve what is required for life. And therefore, trespasses are something in which, again, we violate. You could say those are sins of commission and sins are of omission. We, we don't ever reach the standard. We don't ever get there. No matter how high we get, we never reach the perfect standard of God. And so Paul says you were dead because of your sin and your transgressions. And as a result, we could say we're doubly dead. That's what Paul, in essence, is, is implying. We're doubly dead because we fail to do what we should do and we've gone against what we shouldn't do. We've, done, we've gone against God's design and not lived up to his standard. Then Paul uses another word picture, as I said, he uses enslaved. And there Paul is telling us that we're in bondage to forces that we may not know or understand them, but they are there and they are real. Those forces are forces that are beyond our control. They're called the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, the world is just the system running without the system designer. The world is men and women trying to do it on their own. The world is under the control of another. And that's where the devil or Satan comes in. The prince of the power of the air. And then the other is to add to this enslavement metaphor is the problem of not only the world and the devil, but the control of our own flesh. And by flesh, we're not talking about our skin. We're talking about our self-centered desires, our I want what I want. And because that, we often, as sinners, we want to be on the throne of our own lives instead of the rightful ruler, and that is our God. And so all of these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all are part of the death domination that sin has brought into the world. And as a result, Paul then says, we're condemned. All humanity, no exceptions, we are condemned. A lot of people don't like the idea of the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is simply God's nature and character that cannot tolerate the presence of evil. He can't go near it. He can't go around it. He has to be opposed to it because he is light and good. The concept of children of wrath here, though, Paul is specifically pointing out that it 
it gives us the condition of being members of a fallen race. We weren't born into the world with a blank slate. Have you ever heard that? A tabula rasa? Uh, The idea a lot of humanists think that, well, you know, basically... Mankind is really good. I mean, how many of you, how, how many times do you hear that? Well, do you think basically uh, people are good? Yeah, yeah, my, I think most of That's hogwash. Paul is saying, no, they're not good. None is good. No, not one. He tells us in Romans. Man is not basically good. He doesn't come in with a blank slate that can be written on and and for whatever purpose. No, he already comes in in bondage, enslaved, dead in trespasses and sins and condemned because God can have nothing to do with sin and unholiness because he is a holy God. You see, we weren't born into this world with a blank slate, innocent until we did something wrong. No, we came into the world marred by sin. And you know where we got it from? Our first parents. You say, well, that's not fair. They can't do that and and pass it on to us. Oh, yes, they can. (laughs) Federal, that's what we call federal headship. It works. And we need it to work because that's how also, as we're going to see, we get into Christ. We have a representative, and that representative acts and speaks for all of us. Now, if you're really all all, uh, bent out of shape about that, don't worry. You've ratified it 100,000 times over the sins of Adam and Eve. So, yes, you inherited it from them, and that is enough to sink you there and sink me and anyone else on the planet. But you and I have multiple times over and over and over and over and again sinned by word and deed, thought, etc. So, can't just say, well, it's all on Adam and Eve. Well, it started there, and we inherited that, and we came into this world born in sin, but we continue to do plenty on our own. We don't need their help in order to still be sinners. You say, well, what is all this about? This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity you've ever heard that and what does that mean does that mean everybody on the planet is as bad as they possibly can be that everybody's a a virtual joseph stalin or adolf hitler no doesn't mean that at all there are degrees in which sin manifests itself in various people but the point is no one gets away no one gets off scot-free all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore are under just and rightful condemnation total depravity does not mean everyone's as bad as they can be it means that every part of your humanity mind body soul will heart desire everything has been corrupted by sin You say, well, Joe, thanks for cheering us up. Um, But Paul's not through. (laughs) He goes on. He's given us the bad news. Now he's going to give us the good. Our life in Christ. We were, he says, past tense. He's telling the Ephesians, you were 
I'm reminding you that you were dead in trespasses and sins. But then we talks about our life in Christ, verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 begins what some people call the great, the great adversative. You ever heard that expression? Adversative. The great adversative. And you know what that great adversative is? But God. This is all true. Paul is saying, yes, you're dead. You're enslaved. You're condemned. But God did something about it. God stepped in to the situation to pull up on the stick. These two words provide a vivid contrast between man's desperate condition and the gracious saving action of God. In short, Paul says he saved us. You know, a lot of people today don't like the like, you know, used to hear people a long time ago talk about, are you saved, brother? You know, well, you know, some people don't like to talk about, well, yeah, I'm saved. Well, and we talk about it, our, our faith in, in often other terms. But that's still fundamentally just spot on. And that's what Paul says here. How do I put this in just a few words? He saved us. What he did saved us from ourselves and for him. The word saved is a perfect participle emphasizing the abiding consequences of not what you do and what I do, but what God has already done historically in the events that we call the resurrection, the ascension, and the session. The session meaning Christ's seating at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. That's, it is our salvation is accomplished not through what you do and what I do, but through what Jesus did historically and is now brought us in to fellowship with him. Paul uses, we're going to hear in a minute, that in Christ over and over and over again. Paul, though, is, is, when he talks about here in this text about the resurrection and about uh, mentions that as in, the, in Paul's in this letter, he's talking about the, the resurrection, the ascension, and the session of Jesus. But he's not talking about that in this text here, about Jesus having been resurrected and having ascended and having uh, ascending at the right hand of the Father. He's he knows that's true. He's not denying that. He's obviously affirmed that in many places. But he's saying to the Ephesians, the part of this that's important for you is that you are, because you're in Christ, because you believed in him and trusted in him, and because of God's grace, you have been saved and are in Christ, and now you are raised. You are ascended. You are already seating at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Paul, is, that's the point he's making here. He's wanting them to know it's not about what happened to Jesus in this text. It's about what happens to us, to dead men, former dead men and women. Now in Christ, we are united with Jesus. You see, by virtue of our saving union in Jesus, we share his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. He's alive, 
we are alive. He has ascended, we will ascend to the Father. He has, is sitting on the right hand of the Father. We are, will be there one day in a complete sense. We already there are there principally. There's already a down payment. We already are, as Paul will say elsewhere, we've already died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. There's a part of us that's already there. We just haven't realized the fullness of it. Paul here and elsewhere uses this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know that passage. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. and Behold, all things have become new. That's what God has done for dead men and women and boys and girls that put their faith in him and trust in him. He saves them from themselves and for the Father's purposes. Next, Paul goes on to address the instrument of what brought this great salvation about. Look at verse uh, 8. If you look there in in our text, for by grace, this very familiar passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So, grace is what? It's God's free, undeserved favor for us, for sinners. The question is, how do we get it? How do we obtain it? Okay, great. It's it's the story, a promise of God being willing to give his favor and grace to undeserving sinners. But how does it become ours? How do we appropriate it? Would be another way to say it. You see, grace is God's free, undeserved favor toward us, and faith is the humble instrument that receives it. This is where we we could kind of call this once again one of the tensions in the scriptures we see a lot of things in human responsibility divine sovereignty there are many of those kind of tensions well here's here's another one here here we encounter the sovereignty of grace and the responsibility of faith the sovereignty of grace is paul got is telling us look this grace is all of god you didn't do anything not a thing did you contribute to it not now not ever not No, it's all of him. It's all of grace. You don't get 1%. No, you don't get any. It's all of grace. So Paul is is exultantly attributing the uh, the Ephesians' salvation to the solitary achievement of God's grace and God's grace alone. But he also says the instrument comes into play. Faith is... Who has the faith? Faith may be given. All things come from God. But who has to exercise faith? We do. Human beings have to. You see, however, faith is the instrumental means of receiving grace. Grace is from God, all about God, accomplished by God, and none by us. And yet we receive grace. God's gift personally our faith is the gift of God but we 
must exercise it. It's God's gift, all his, but who is to employ it? Who is to exercise that gift? That's where you and I come in. You see, a lot of people know a lot of facts about Christianity. They know a lot of things even about the gospel, the true gospel, and what it is. They may even know that, no, you, I'm not, I can't be saved by anything I do. I have to be saved by, by what Jesus did on the cross and dying and rising. They know those things. But that doesn't, they're not, that doesn't make them a Christian. It's not just osmosis or, or head knowledge. It's got to get from here to here. And that's where the instrumentality of faith, it's something you have to appropriate. You have to receive the gift promised it's like we demonstrate uh, sometimes with with children we take a box gift and i've done this here on this stage before where where a child is holding a gift and i say look i've got this or excuse me i'm holding the gift and i've said i got this wonderful gift for you do you want it yeah 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 why aren't you taking it you know and basically she has to or he has to reach out the hand of faith and receive that gift It has to become yours. Faith has to be received. So a lot of people know a lot of facts, but that doesn't make you a child of God. It doesn't join you to Jesus Christ. It's when we receive. Remember what John 1.12? For as many as what? Received him. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. John is saying, there's an, there's an activity of receiving that brings us into union with Christ. And so, we have the responsibility to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if we want to be saved. Anyone, anywhere, anytime, if they want to be saved, they can be saved. God has made it so and put everything in place in Christ Jesus, but they need to receive him. Have you all received him? I've told you the story how that night that I did, 17 years old, crossing the bridge and on the other side, I knew I was a new creation. I've told you that many times, but I finally understood. It wasn't about just knowing about Jesus. I had to receive and trust in him as my Savior and my Lord. Now, Paul, though, interestingly, has one more point to make. And that's in verse 10. Our walk with Christ. Paul closes out this journey from death to life, underscoring the necessity of something very interesting called good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Paul closes out the journey, like I said, with this. Although salvation, or excuse me, although salvation is not of works, listen carefully, salvation is not of works, don't get the cart before the horse, yet we are created for good works. It doesn't come from but we are created 
for those good works. Think of an orange. Let's just take a, uh, an orange tree. An orange tree's fruit doesn't make it a tree. No, an orange tree is an orange tree, whether it has fruit on it or not. Does an orange, uh, uh, let me say it one more time, um, get it right. Um, and I lost, lost my, lost my uh, thought. Um, yeah, an orange tree's fruit does not make it a tree, but an orange tree is planted and grown for its fruit. It doesn't make it a tree, but if it's an orange tree, it has a purpose, and that purpose is for it to bear fruit. So people plant orange trees in order to grow fruit. And we've got to make sure we get the cart and the horse in the right direction. A lot of people get all confused about the relationship of faith and works. But if you simply, it's clear in the Bible over and over, whether you're talking Paul or whether you're talking James, there's no contradiction. They're just looking at the other, each on the other end of the, of the uh, tree and the fruit. You see, saving faith produces works. Paul uses that term, a uh, particular Greek term, uh, we, a lot of our Bibles translate workmanship. Some even translate it masterpieces. In other words, it's the result of what God has been carving, creating. Um, but we are his workmanship created by our maker and redeemer so that we would walk with him and do the works that he is calling us to do. Now, here's something very important. So we'll get, wrap this. It's very important. We tend to think, okay, yeah, all right, I'm a Christian now and I'm supposed to do good works, all right? How do I go, go about, and it's all about me doing good works, helping the little lady cross the street, you know, this, that. We miss something. So much of the Bible is corporate in nature. It's not talking about each of us individually. This good works is not just something that you and I individually should do, and we should, but it's so much more than that. And Paul is really envisioning a corporate reality of the church of God with all its diversity, all doing works that glorify God and minister to those around them and part of the body. You see, good works, it's not hero ball. <laughs> Do you know what hero ball is? Hero ball in basketball is like you see, it's like today, it's like so many, nobody plays team ball anymore. It's like somebody gets the ball and they dribble around and they, they're, they throw up brick after brick after brick. They just keep shooting. As if they're running around. You know, four other guys are just standing around while this guy's running. The NBA is just full of that kind of stuff. That's why I don't watch it anymore. It's just, it's bad basketball. Um, and people, you know, running around, trying to, you know, it's all about me. No. The good works that are going to make a difference, folks, they're going to come when the whole body of Christ is doing them unto God and for one another and others. 
You see, corporate workmanship is so important here. And my friends, if we do that, if we not only are seeking to honor and walk with Jesus and do the works that he's ordained that we should walk in them, but if we're also finding ways to encourage one another to do that and to do that for one another and to one another, then we're going to start seeing some very, very sweet fruit growing in this place and in our hearts. That's what we were called to. He saved us for a purpose. And out of gratitude now, let's glorify him with the fruit of good works. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask you today that once again, um, the, the feeble effort that I might, Lord, try and to understand and explain your word. But Father, once again, send the Holy Spirit, Lord, to open our eyes, to see things that I have not uh, revealed or have not been able to, to make clear enough. Father, I pray, Lord, that once again, you, you are the one that can open spiritually blind eyes. You're the one who raises the spiritually dead from death to life. Father, thank you for doing that for us in Christ Jesus. Father, help us want to, to share that love and that you have shown us and that grace that you have given us with others. Father, help us to follow you and walk with you in good works that glorify you and edify your body and those in need, we pray in Jesus' name.